Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind, and I'm here on a very windy spring day. Um, The wind is coming from the front of the house where there's a front door that's pretty creaky. So if you hear some creaking in the background, I'm not trying to set up a haunted house or anything. It's just my front door trying to be blown down by the crazy wind outside. Okay, so anyway, today we are talking about a bit of a thick subject. So I'm going to rely on you guys to focus. <laughs> it might be kind of hard because it might be helpful to have maps out in front of you. It might be helpful to have your Bible out in front of you. If you're a good visualizer, you're going to do better than people that have to see pictures and things. But basically, if you have a hard time seeing things in your head, save this episode for when you can sit down with a map. I'm thinking it might help a lot to do that. I have a map out behind me. I have my Bible beside me, and I have my notes in front of me, so I'm surrounded by stuff. So if you guys need that too, hit pause, go get a map, use, you know, Google Maps on your phone if you want to, do whatever you need to, but we're going to be looking at Genesis 10 and Ezekiel 38. Genesis 10 is the table of nations, and Ezekiel 38 contains some prophecy that talks about different people groups and nations that were around in the Bible times. Okay, so we talked about ethnicity, culture, and nationality in the last episode to help set us up for this episode, because we have to distinguish between all those different things to talk about city-states and nations and people groups and empires in Bible times. In our culture today, especially in the U.S., We have a melting pot of different cultures and ethnicities so that we don't necessarily distinguish between them all the time, right? My mom's side of the family is Swiss, German, and Irish, but they don't identify as Swiss or German or Irish, maybe German somewhat. But we don't have like very special characteristics that we uphold with traditions that make us German. I sure don't anyway. We're identifying much more as American, which is a nationality. The ethnicities are a little bit more more mixed together. Oh, and I'm Irish too. I forgot about that one. See, it just doesn't even matter to me. I do zero on St. Patrick's Day, okay? But basically today, ethnicity and culture and nationality, you might really identify with ethnicity and not so much with nationality or a lot with nationality and not so much with ethnicity. So it's all over the place. But in Bible times, one ethnicity usually made one nationality. One language may make one ethnicity, one culture, one everything. Even your religion might have depended on where you lived and what your culture was. Different cultures in the Bible had different religions, different gods that they worshipped, right? So what we're going to talk about today, we're going to start with Genesis 10. And we're going to look at the different names that are mentioned in this chapter. And look at what do we know about these names? Because (laughs) we're in the names and titles series here. So we got to take 
you know, look at these nation names and people group names. And that's what we have in Genesis 10. So I'm going to read for you Genesis 10, just the first couple of verses, just to give you a sample of where we're going and what we're talking about here, okay? So Genesis 10 verse 1 says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. The flood had just happened. All of humanity had been wiped out except for Noah and his sons. So now they're kind of basic, they're basically starting humanity all over again. So what they list here is the genealogy of the world, of the nations of the ancient Near East. Because you know how Mesopotamia is called the cradle of civilization? That's because that's where people lived when there weren't that many people. That's where a lot of the civilizations of the world began. I have no clue how Chinese got all the way over to the other side of Asia or Japanese or people in the South Pacific. I don't know, so don't ask me about that. But this is what we know from the Bible, right? So this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. And I'll just read verse 2 as an example. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, and I'm just going to mention this one, were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma, and it goes on. So we're going to talk about the three sons of Noah again, and then we'll talk about some other names that are mentioned in this passage. But if you remember back to the first episode that we did in this season, we talked about kind of like the genealogy, the the people groups that came out of the three sons of Noah. So we've mentioned that before, but we're going to do it again. So we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now it's basically known that each of these sons was the ancestor of many people groups, which of course they would have to be because they're the only three guys in the world, right? So Ham is known to be the father of most of the African civilizations and a little bit of the Middle East. Shem is known as the father of the nations. And, and by when I say nations, I mean people groups, ethnicities in the Middle East. And then Japheth is known as the father of peoples that lived in a, a pretty huge swath from Iran all the way up through Europe. It's just kind of like this huge stroke all the way up through there. We were painting yesterday, so I'm thinking about painting terms, stroke. So what are some examples of some Hamite cultures or ethnicities and by extension languages? Well, one of them is the original Egyptian language. Egypt today, their national language is Arabic. People in Egypt today speak Arabic, but that is not their ethnic language. That's not what is from their past, from their history. Coptic is what is from their history. If you've heard of the Coptic language, you've probably only heard it within the context of the Coptic church. The Coptic church is the Egyptian Orthodox church, Christian church, and they still use Coptic as their liturgical language. Liturgical meaning that's what they use just to read the Bible, do prayers, do their liturgy. It's the same as what Latin was to the Catholic Church before Vatican II in the 1970s. So Coptic today is still used, but not as a conversational language. It has very specific purposes today. 
Okay, so that's one example of a Hamite language. Semitic languages, here's some examples. Arabic, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Arabic and Hebrew are pretty similar. And I don't think I told you guys this story before, but one time Ryan and I were at a hotel, and this was just, oh, this was just last year. We were at a hotel, and we were standing out waiting um, in front of the hotel for something. And there were these two guys standing off to the other side of the entrance, and they were standing there smoking, and they started speaking in a language. And I was like, what is that language? And Ryan and I started taking, taking guesses what that language was. And I forget what Ryan's guess was. I think he was guessing Eastern European, something like Bulgarian or Croatian or, or uh, maybe even Ukrainian. And I was like, nah, it sounds more Middle Eastern to me. It sounds maybe Turkish. And I, I wasn't sure what it was. But then one of the guys looked at the other guy and said something to him. And the guy gestured towards the hotel and he said, smell, smell, and I smell. And I thought, oh, I have to know now what he's speaking. So I walked over to him and I said, hey, can you settle something for me and my husband? We're taking guesses on what language you were speaking. What were you speaking? And he asked what our guesses were first. He wanted to see who was right. And he said he was speaking Arabic. He was speaking Palestinian Arabic. And I should have known, uh, but I didn't. The reason why I needed to know was because I knew when he was gesturing towards the building and he said, smell, I knew he was telling his friend directions of how to find something. He was telling him, go on the left side, go to the left. (laughs) And I knew that because in Hebrew, it's small. He said, smell, in Hebrew, it's small. He was speaking Arabic and that's Hebrew. And that's how similar they can be sometimes. Their numbering system is very similar. If you count in Arabic very slowly, very clearly, and only up to 10, I'll know what you're saying. Um, But Arabic and Hebrew, both Semitic languages, and they're related to each other. You can understand them each a little bit if you know one. Another example of Semitic languages is ones used in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Eritrea is just a smaller country tucked up into the uh, eastern side of Africa near Ethiopia and Somalia. But I actually had a student in one of my ESL classes that spoke uh, a Semitic language from Eritrea, and his language was called Tigrinya. So some of these languages you'll never hear unless you meet somebody who speaks that language. Those are some of the examples of Semitic languages still spoken today. And then the last guy, Japheth. Japhethite peoples settled in Turkey and up through north and west of Turkey, which is today Europe. Okay, so after we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, we have a whole list of names that gets interpreted in all sorts of ways by modern Christians. So let's look at a few of these names because some of them are super obvious what they are and where they were and who lived there and what empire they're a part of and all that kind of stuff. And others, not at all obvious, okay? So let's look at some easy ones first. Nineveh, we should know that name. Mitzrayim, we should know that one. Canaan, Sidon, Elam, not so easy, but I threw it in there. And Jebusites, 
We know these names. We know where these places were because they have the name of the person who became the father of the nation or the cultural group or the ethnic group. And very often the founder of a city, that city was named after them. Okay, so Nineveh, we know, was the capital of Babylon. Mitzrayim is just the Hebrew word for Egypt. Even in modern Hebrew, if you say, hey, how do you see Egypt in Hebrew? They would say Mitzrayim. Canaan, we know what that is. We even had a whole episode talking about Canaan. Sidon and Elam. These places and these names have zero controversy about them. We know where they're talking about. So the founders of the town usually named the city or state, and so they named it after themselves. But who lived there? Usually ethnically similar people. One people group founded a city, and then maybe other people groups came and settled there as well. But it's usually one ethnic group with a related culture, like, you know, you might have a little bit of variety of cultures within one ethnic group, but then under one political system. So let's talk about these in in a little bit more detail. Nineveh was the capital of the empire of Babylon, where it was smack dab in the middle of what is modern day Iraq. So does that make modern Iraqis Babylonians? This is why we wanted to talk about culture, ethnicity, and nationality, because we need to divide down between them, especially when we're talking about 2,000 years ago and modern times. So are modern Iraqis Babylonians, if the Babylonians lived in what is today Iraq, maybe they might have Babylonian blood in them. But these empires added in lots of other people. Other ethnic groups came in, especially if they were conquered by Babylon. Remember, Babylonian Empire. Empire necessarily means conqueror, right? The British Empire went out and made colonies all over the world. Empires like to get land and like to collect people. So the Babylonian Empire was not one ethnic group because it conquered peoples and then they brought them back home with them. So even back then, Babylon had a lot of different cultures. It was founded maybe by one ethnic group, but it collected a lot of other ethnic groups along with it. Even just the Hebrews, right? So we know this area we know where Babylon was by what country is there now, Iraq. It's just an easy way to find it. But what is there culturally and ethnically today is not the same as what was there 2,000 years ago. How about Elam? Elam was in what is now southern Iran. The capital of Elam, this was an interesting one. I was like, oh, duh, I should have known that one, right? I guess not. Susa. You know that name from the book of Esther. Xerxes was in his citadel, Susa. Susa and the Elamites are mentioned in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. There is no Elam now. It was an empire long ago, but there is Iran. So are modern Iranians Elamites? Mm, Probably not. (laughs) Maybe some. They might have some Elamite blood, but Iran is not ethnically or culturally Elamite. There were other empires in what is today Iran. Canaan, the area that is now known as Israel and parts of Jordan, 
Lebanon, and Syria. And it's actually a group name for a lot of different ites. Amorites, Hittites, Moabites, and Amorites. But these civilizations were at different periods of time, or at least had empires at different periods. And this was an area that got conquered by a lot of different people. Egyptians, Babylonians, Medes and Persians, Greeks, Romans, on and on, right? So ethnically, got mixed all over the place because of just empires invading and mixing around peoples. So Canaan is now an area, we don't really use Canaan to refer to anything except in ancient Near East, but it referred to people groups and is today governed by nations, different nations. So is the country of Jordan today Amorite or Ammonite? No, it's different culturally and ethnically. They still have museums there, which commemorate Amorite and Ammonite culture. I've been to some of them. I've been in Jordan. But today, they don't identify culturally or ethnically as Ammonite. Sidon was a city on the Mediterranean coast. We hear about that in a couple of different places in the Old and New Testament. And the Jebusites, those are people who lived in Jerusalem, Jebus. So those are some easy ones. So we can look through the table of nations in Genesis 10 and say, oh, we know where that is. And we know where this place was. And we know, oh, that was an empire, blah, blah, blah. But there are some in there that are not so easy. So let's look at some of these that are not so easy. All right. I have five here. Ashkenaz, Tarshish, Eber, Gomer, and Magog. And some of these names are also in Ezekiel 38 for those of you who are into prophecy and trying to figure out World War III, okay? But names in the Bible are often used to interpret and talk about prophecy. So if you're into prophecy, you need to know what the facts are. And there are some about these places. It's not all mystery, okay? Some of the nations listed in Ezekiel 38 are well known to historians exactly who they mean. And some of them have the same name in modern Hebrew as they had in ancient Hebrew. For instance, there's zero mystery about who and where Mitzrayim is. We already talked about that one. It's Egypt. I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses out of Ezekiel 38, because this is where people focus when they think about Magog, for instance. Okay, so here you go. Ezekiel 38. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Okay, so we have a lot of names in there. But here's a really good one that can be settled just so fast. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. And when I copied that down, there's a footnote right next to Rosh. And I left it in there because it tells you that Rosh is not a name. It's not a name in Hebrew. It's a title in Hebrew. Okay. So I thought this was a really important one to talk about in our names and titles series because people think it's a name and it's not. It's a title. 
Rosh in Hebrew means chief or boss or main person. It's basically why they call him the prince. It's not a name. It's a title. So you have to take that out of your head as a place. Rosh. People sometimes say that's Russia. It's not because, and this is why they do it, Rosh. And then the tribe that originally was the Slavic peoples of Russia and Ukraine are the Rus. It's very similar, but it's not a name. It's a title. It means chief. Okay. It's a title for a person or an angel. And then some other context for you. Later, it says Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops. So people say, ah, the far north. Obviously, that's Russia then, right? Except we're thinking about that in terms of our global society, where you can fly around the world in hours instead of traveling there in caravans over months and years, right? Context, the far north. In another place in the Bible, in Isaiah, the far north is simply Mount Hermon, which is miles away, not like days and days away. It's still within Israel. So you have to be careful about interpreting what the Bible says in modern thinking versus how the Bible used it according to how the Bible used it in other places. Okay, so let's talk about these other names. We talked about Ashkenazi Jews in a previous year, uh, episode, and there are only theories about where Ashkenazi Jews originated, but let me tell you one of them. The land of Ashkenaz, so we're going to get into some stuff here. This is a pretty cool part, I think. The land of Ashkenaz was definitely in an area, and I'm going to play a little trick on you. The land of Ashkenaz was definitely in the area of the Caucasus Mountains, which is between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Okay, how many of you just kind of like tried to imagine that and blanked out or totally glazed over before I even started reading it? Be honest now. <laughs> if you all did, that's actually a really good point. I wanted to tell you that very often when we talk about these biblical places, we use geographic features like seas and rivers and mountains and oceans to talk about them. Why do we do that? is because most geographic features don't change. Mountains and oceans typically don't change enough for us to lose track of where they were. It's because political lines change all the time. There's now a South Sudan and a Sudan, right? That didn't exist 30 years ago. Now it's two different countries. How do we refer to that to people that lived there 50 years ago so that we know exactly where we're talking about? We can use geography. So when we're talking about Bible places and Bible names, and it gives you geographic places, it's because they're not relying on political lines for you to know where it is because political lines change. So Ashkenaz was in an area between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, which is where the Caucasus Mountains are. This is the area today that you might know from the news because Chechnya is in that area and Georgia and it's a very hmm, contentious area because there's a lot of different ethnicities all packed into a smaller area and different ethnicities want their own country and want autonomy they want to be able to govern themselves and there's a lot of different ethnicities in that area 
So who lived there back in the day, 2000 years ago plus? Well, one of the people groups that lived there at one point were the Scythians. Scythians. And all I can think of when I think about Scythians is horses. And I had to Google it to see why. (laughs) Why did I think about horses when I think about Scythia? And part of it, I think, is media, movies, things like that. But the Scythians were known as good horseback riders, and they, when they were in battle, they had bow and arrow, and they rode on horses. So they were good fighters that way. And if you've ever watched the movie King Arthur, they have in there the Sarmatian Knights. King Arthur in that movie was a Sarmatian Knight. The Sarmatians were related to the Scythians and didn't live very far away from them. So you can think about that when you think about Ashkenaz and a couple of other names in here and Scythians. They're from a very pretty close area in the Caucasus Mountains, northwestern Iran and northeastern Turkey, all in that area. So are Ashkenazi Jews Scythians? Are they Russians? Are they Armenians? Are they Georgians? Um, If you ask an Ashkenazi Jew today if they are Armenian, I'm pretty sure that they would say no. I haven't asked any, but no, they would identify as Jewish, as Ashkenazi. So culturally and ethnically, religiously, nationally, they're none of those things, right? They're Ashkenazi Jews. Now let's get to it. Magog and Gog. When I look these places up in a, what is this thing called? Bible Atlas by Zondervan. I have an Atlas of the Bible by Zondervan. I thought they would be like, oh, we're not sure where Magog and Gog are. And, you know, it could have been up here, could have been over there. They're like, nope, it's Turkey. I was like, really? You're just going to say that and it just be like no controversy about it? Yeah, Magog and Gog <laughs> were in Turkey, okay? There's not, when you look at academic sources, even when it's something like Zondervan, they don't make a controversy about it. They say it was in Turkey. But here's the thing that makes it difficult. Even biblical resources say we don't even know if this was a nation, a people, or a person, meaning we don't know if Magog was an individual, a nation, or an ethnic group, right? So who's Gog? What is Gog? Is it a person? Is it a whole empire? That we don't know. And we only have it mentioned a couple of times. Um, So you can't really take one thing that's mentioned five times in the Bible and put one main theory on it and say you definitively know what it is. We know generally that Magog and Gog were probably in Turkey. We have Josephus tell us that. We sometimes trust Josephus, but sometimes he exaggerates things. But here's the thing. What's the point of all this? Why am I dragging you down through Genesis 10 and Ezekiel 38? Well, it's because of facts like these. The fact that we can't say that Elam is Iran. And I, I'm guilty of this, right? Before I started looking into this more, I was like, I looked at Ryan and I was like, Elam is right, Persia, right? I'm like, oh no, that's stupid to say. Elam is not Persia. Persia is Persia. It was a different empire. But I was trying to simplify it because it's complicated and ancient history is tough. 
that's the moral of the story. Ancient history is tough. A lot of empires that just too many empires, right? We can't say that Alam is Persia and we can't say that Alam is Iran. Alam was an empire in the southern part of what is now Iran, but they're different ethnically, culturally, and politically. And that's one of our easiest examples that we definitively know where it was and who ruled it. Magog and Gog are mentioned like five times in the Bible. And then outside of the Bible, they're only mentioned a few times, once by Josephus, and then one or two other times by other people. And that's it. That's all we know about them. To say that Magog is Russia is to make a huge jump with very little information. So here are some other facts that we do know, okay? Kush was an empire in what is now Sudan, northeastern Africa. Put was an empire in the area of what is now Libya, northern Africa. And Shinar was a plain, just, you know, a flat area, a plain in what is now Iraq. And we already said that Mitzrayim is Egypt. Tarshish might be Spain or somewhere in the Western Mediterranean. And Eber might be where we get the word Hebrew from. Because the Israelites, the Jews, are descended from Eber. So sometimes the people groups would get the name of one of their ancestors. That is one theory of where the word Hebrew comes from. I've heard another theory. I like this one a little bit better. So what do you do with all of this information? Whatever you want. (laughs) But please don't say that because something sounds similar in English to an ancient civilization, it's obviously the same thing. It might be, but it very well might not be. Also, there are some places that we know very well where they were or what they were, but that doesn't mean that whoever lives in the same place now is the same group. I live in Pennsylvania, but I have zero Native American ancestry. In the same way, how are we to know that if we're talking about Gog? Are we talking about the ethnic people of Gog? The nation of Gog, which would have just been in ancient times? Or the culture of Gog, which would be wherever people have the same traditions and values as the ancient Gogians? (laughs) So we're barely told who or where Gog is. In what way are we supposed to understand Gog? It might be Russia. It might be Armenia. It might be one random guy descended from Gog. We don't know. So my takeaway for you is this. If you're serious about the Bible, let it be what it is. Which in these cases is pretty vague. It's pretty vague sometimes. So don't forget to use common sense. We know what a culture and a country is. We know the difference between culture and nationality. Don't make them the same just because you're reading the Bible. It's hard because ancient history is hard. But don't forget the basics just because you're reading the Bible. Okay? So I I don't try to interpret prophecy because prophecy is hard because you don't know what you're talking about in terms of ancient history, whether there's more to come or it's done already. It's hard. Use the basic facts that we have, keep culture and ethnicity, nationality, religion, language, all of these things in mind, and move on from there. But basically, remember the basics, okay? I'm going to stop there. 
I hope you guys have a great day and I'll talk to you later. Bye.